Well, this has been an interesting um, Fourth of July weekend for me as a as a Christian and um, and as a pastor, having responsibility bringing the message to you uh, this morning. I, I I really felt in some ways last Sunday morning just the timeliness of, of the uh, of needing to respond to what everyone was was thinking about and and going through. There was a there was a lot of of emphasis. Uh, Maybe some of the um, the energy that I would have put forth this morning uh, was bubbled up last uh, last week. Um, I found, as I told you last week, my heart going through a number of different emotions from from anger to to grief. Um, Pastor Stephen mentioned about people praying and fasting this weekend, and and to a certain degree, I found myself um, not in a, a very celebratory mood. Uh, um, I clearly celebrate uh, what our country was founded upon and, and the fact that it is the best nation on the planet, bar none. I saw this little um, uh, little uh, meme where this this teacher was explaining history and and they had a, a, a the date up there was uh, you know, July fourth, seventeen seventy six, and the and the little caption below said. Nothing meaningful happened prior to that. Uh, history began July 4, 1776. So, I, I, you know, I get that from a, you know, from a country standpoint, but, but the Lord Jesus came prior to 1776. So when you put both of those two things together, you might have a good meme, but, but that, was, that one was, was lacking. And I just found myself just, just wrestling still with, with the, the emotions of the anger, of the grief, but then in the third one, this the the hope that comes uh, to us in in Christ, and so um, just evaluating what to share, you know, right out of the gate. So last week we're absorbing, we're trying to figure out how to think about this. Um, nothing new. We weren't surprised by by the ruling. Homosexuality is not new. So we heard Sunday morning and Sunday night just how to think being a, a citizen of earth, a subject of heaven, and then Nathan went uh, deeper into how should the church respond to these refugees that are going to buy into what the culture is peddling and be devastated by it because sin is, is devastating. Has anyone in here uh, lived life and, and not have the scars of sin? I have the scars of sin. It's going to be devastating. And, and you've been there before. You, you were there when, when, when feminism came along and people bought into that and now there's refugees from, you know, from that movement. They, sin is deceptive. You buy into it, you take the bait, you follow the line and it leads you to a banquet in the grave, as Proverbs said. People will be left with a mouthful of ashes. They're celebrating and and thinking that this is such a great victory and what they've actually gained is their own death. And that should break our hearts. It should also cause us to, to evaluate how we respond as a, as a church. As we said last week, nothing's changed and everything's changed. Nothing's changed in the sense that we've gathered here this morning to do the same thing that Christians have done since Jesus rose from the dead. We still believe the Bible to be true. No one can ultimately change the definition of, uh, of marriage. And so from that standpoint, the gospel saves, Jesus saves, nothing has changed. On the other side, it is a new world in the way that we'll be dealing with things. We have institutionalized sin in our culture. We have, we have written into laws rebellion against God, and that will be, will be disseminated. It's already being disseminated into the culture, and so... So how do Christians respond to that? We're not responding to homosexuality. That's been around since Sodom and Gomorrah. But there will be new things that we will have to figure out how to deal with. I mean, as a parent, I will have to figure out how to make sure my children understand some things that, that they would have just found natural as part of society. I'm now going to have to figure out ways to, to talk to them about about what society will communicate. When they sit there and watch TV and see the commercials, whether it's Wells Fargo or whether it's Tylenol, and you see the flashes of the families up there and, and the families that they put up there are, are no longer male and female, you know, that is going to just, just 
become increasing. Uh, and you're going to have to figure out how to respond to it. The church is going to have to figure out how to respond to it. So in some ways, we're not on any new ground at all. Since the fall, this has been taking place. Since the fall, the answer has been the redemption of the Lord. And in another, in another sphere, we will be trying to figure out how to, how to maneuver uh, some, of these, some of these things. Um, many different directions I could go this morning. It's obviously Fourth of July weekend, so you could talk about our godly heritage. Um, I could preach about rising up and fighting for the truth. I could preach about not losing sight of the of the main thing, evangelizing the lost, the salvation of of men. I could preach about not being discouraged. God is still on the throne, and it's easy to feel defeated after after a, a seeming victory from Satan. I could preach about about divisions. As I told you last Sunday night, Satan doesn't have just one goal. It's not just to, it's not just to accomplish this in, in culture and keep people bound by their sin and making it easier for them to sin through, through law, but he wants to convince the church to defect. He also wants the church to, to divide up. And frankly, I've already seen some of that. I've, 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 I've heard uh, uh, commentary of why this is happening. Well, this is happening because we didn't preach enough doctrine. You know, the church wasn't doctrinally rooted enough. They got too focused on social issues. So because they weren't rooted in doctrine, then, then that's the reason that this has taken place. I've heard of, no, it's, it's missions. We didn't focus enough on, on missions. We need to be more mission-minded. God's a, Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just America. I've heard it's, no, we're not political enough. That was the reason that this happened. We, we don't do what what we're supposed to do as, as citizens. I've heard, no, it's the pastor's fault. If the pulpits in America, if they had pastors with spines, then none of this would have, would have happened. Everything's the pastor's fault, right, ultimately? Amen. The point is, there's truth in all of those statements. But one of the things I think that Satan really wants to do is to get the church aiming at one another rather than at the real enemy. You know who the real enemy is? It's the devil and sin. It's not believers. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is not the church. The problem is out there. But we can be, find ourselves very easily looking for the a scapegoat. You know those, those Geico commercials? Silly Geico commercials. You know that one with the peanut butter factory where they're saying, you know, the peanut butter things are going everywhere and said, uh, who did this? And they point over there and, and then there's a goat on the, on the assembly line. And he looks and he says, ah! And he screams. That's what Christians sound like sometimes. You know, it's like, ah, we're screaming at one another. We need to focus on the fact that if we're ever going to get through anything difficult, any pressure outside, you can't be fighting amongst yourselves inside. You've got to circle the wagons and take care of, of one another because Satan really wants our energies focused in here rather than, rather than out there. Amen? Amen, preacher. That's good preaching. Absolutely. Now, there is, that's just to name a few topics. But the one that I've chosen for you this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Whenever you are preaching uh, verse by verse, my task during the week is to get the text right. And that's hard enough. But whenever your task, you're preaching about a topic or an event, you have to choose the topic and get the text right. You always have to get the text right. So it's doubly difficult. And clearly there's a subjective aspect there. So I'm bringing this to you as, as your pastor, as the shepherd, uh, uh, charged with the responsibility of this, of this flock. And so just, I just plead with you to pray. Pray not only for me, but pray for the other pastors as we do try to shepherd through these, these, these kinds of, of things. Um, pray for us that we would lead humbly and lead righteously. While all of those topics I mentioned before, you could have preached a message this message, this letter to the church of Smyrna resonated with my heart and I think it's a good place to start. The New Testament is amazing. Um, 
One of the things I didn't discover until I'd been a believer for a long time was the big picture of the Bible, the panorama. Just seeing. One of the reasons I preached the Foundation Series. Seeing the big picture from Genesis to Revelation. How God is unfolding His plan of, of redemption. It's, it's, it, it, the Bible is, is so deep, as you've heard, the greatest theologian can get lost in it, but it's also so simple. The message is so simple. And you can see that. I can also see the big picture unfolding in, in the New Testament. And I just, I'm very conceptual, so uh, it always just, just jumps out at me. So when you see the New Testament... Yes, there's a number of, of, of Gospels and letters and books written in the New Testament, but there's a system that you can clearly there, you can clearly see. The Gospels is the coming of Christ. John the Baptist is the Messiah, paving the way for the Messiah. The Gospels is he's here and this is what he's done and this is his life and this is his message and his death, burial and resurrection. And then the Gospels end with, the, with Christ raising from the dead. And then you have the book of Acts, right? And the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit is advancing the gospel through men across the globe. And so the church is being built in the book of of Acts. And it provides for us a a skeleton, if you will, for the rest of the Bible. The book of Acts is a a story, it's a narrative, but but it's also got some chronology there. It records the witness of the gospel in Jerusalem by Jews, Peter and John. It records the witness of the gospel to Samaria by Philip and others. Then it records the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth through the three missionary journeys of Paul. And then the book of Acts ends with the mission still going on. And the mission is still going on. It's still going on this morning as I preach and as you are here. The work of the Holy Spirit in establishing churches is highlighted throughout the book of Acts. And then, after you move out of the book of Acts, you can look at the epistles. The epistles, you can see the muscles, if you will. You have the skeleton, how the gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then you see the muscles. The epistles have the commands. This is what God has commanded of these churches that are planted in the book of Acts. The issues that they had to deal with. Don't think that we're the first Christians to ever struggle with sin or deal with issues. Don't think we're the the first church to ever deal with issues. I mean, the whole reason that a lot of the epistles are written is because they were struggling with division or they were struggling with doubt or they were struggling with sin or whatever it is. And so in the epistles you have the commands, the issues, and then also how to establish godly leadership, the qualifications of that leadership and how it grows. And then the book that we're in this morning, Revelation. Revelation, of course, shows the end. But in the first part of Revelation, where these seven letters are written, you get to see how these churches that were planted in Acts, that were given commands to the epistles, you get to see how they're faring about 60 years after the death of Christ. It's fascinating to me when I look at Acts chapter 6 that you're just a few years after Jesus rose from the dead, just a few years after Pentecost, and they're already having issues with the, with the Hebrews and the Hellenists early on. How are they doing second generation? How are they doing 60 years after Jesus? Well, we could all give commentary this morning saying, how's the church doing 2,000 and some odd years after Jesus rose from the dead. Well, here in the first part of Revelation, before he tells us what is to come, he tells us about the things that are. And he writes these seven letters to to the churches. And it's in this this section that we're going to gain some insight from the church at, at Smyrna. There is... A message to to us from every one of uh, every one of those churches. Um, all of the letters in Revelation reveal something. The church at Ephesus is called the loveless church. The church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. The church at Pergamos is called the compromising church. The church at Thyatira is called the corrupt church. The church at Sardis, the dead church. The church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. The church at Laodicea, the apostate. Church. 
60 years after Jesus sent the gospel forth, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, this is the condition of individual local churches in Asia Minor. And what's interesting about these letters is they're written from Jesus himself. Now, th- now this, is a, this is a fascinating question to me. What would Jesus write to Timberlake Baptist Church? Now, I mean, we know that, that we already have what Jesus would say to Timberlake Baptist Church with, with the Word. So I'm, I'm pontificating a little bit here, okay? I mean, we know what Jesus would say to Timberlake. But I'm talking specifics. How would you like to be the church at Smyrna or Ephesus that got the letter that, that doesn't just give revelation like it is to us, but gives revelation with specifics to individuals and to this local church? Um, what would Jesus say to us with perfect ability to perfectly evaluate our mission and how we're fulfilling it, and the individuals that that are here. It's fascinating, at the end of every one of these letters, they all end with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, it says that not only to give the, the author of the letter to these churches that are they're being written to, but also to say to us, this is God speaking. He's speaking not just to Smyrna this morning, He's speaking to us. And besides discouragement, besides division, I think Satan surely wants the church to defect from the truth. Um, and we must not do that. In the words of Christ to Smyrna, I think, Help set the tone. This is not an end point. It's a beginning point for, for our discussion about how to deal with all of, these, all of these things. And Smyrna is encouraged not to compromise under pressure. Do you feel pressure already as being a, being a Christian? You have no idea. Well, maybe you do. Timberlake Baptist Church, Timberlake Christian Schools, I think, got a taste of what life is going to be like in certain ways with the issue with the little girl at at TCS. It was just a small taste. And as we said, praise God, the Lord was gracious as we were faithful and walked through 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 that fire. Will you stand boldly and refuse to compromise? I would say everybody in here would say, I hope by grace of God. I would do that. How will you know whether you will do that? It won't be your words. It will be how you actually walk through the fire whenever the fire comes. And, and you need to remember, Satan is, is a, presents himself as an angel of light, right? He's an accuser of the brethren. He, he is also the one that presents himself as an angel of light. And sin is deceptive. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Bible says we're all depraved... And so we're whacked out in the head anyway. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Sin deceives us. We have an enemy that, that is out there. And so Satan in these situations is not going to show up at your door with, with the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork and say, hello, I'm the devil, follow me. And you're going to say, okay, of course you're not going to do that. He's going to be slippery in the way that he works. And here you get a good example in Smyrna. Let's read verse 8, chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful until death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Praise the Lord for His Word. Seven letters. There's only two that have encouragement in them and no rebuke, and this one's one of them. All encouragement, no rebuke. This is the shortest of all of the letters written in the book of Revelation. Now, Smyrna probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, although it's kind of fun to say, Smyrna. Sounds like you're talking through your nose. But it was about 40 miles from Ephesus. Everybody's heard of Ephesus because of the letter to the Ephesians. It's modern-day Izmir, Turkey. That probably makes more sense to you. It's in Turkey. And so, you just think about today, is there a church in, in Smyrna? There's no doubt believers there, but it's dominated by Muslims today. The city was wealthy. It was known for science and for medicine. It had paved streets. It had plenty of temples. And like Ephesus, Smyrna was a self-governing society, completely devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. And while this letter is being written, Domitian is the emperor. You ever heard his name before? When you hear his name, think bad guy, because he was. He brought some of the most heinous and difficult persecution down on believers known to man. And here is a city that while they were wealthy, while they would be known for science and medicine, what they, re, what they rejoiced in was the fact that they loved Rome and they loved the emperor and the emperor worship was one of the primary things that this city rallied behind. And they made it a requirement. We read in Romans chapter 10 this morning about confessing with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. We read about believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and, and confessing with your mouth. And, and confessing that Jesus is Lord comes from what is taking place here in Smyrna, that, that text. It didn't just happen in Smyrna. It happened all over the Roman Empire. But the emperor worship, what would take place is that once a year they would bring a, a portable in some places... Uh, altar around. And as they would bring the, the, the altar around, it was only dedicated to one god, and that was the Roman emperor, because he was deified in, in, in his mind. And you would, as a citizen, you would come up, and it didn't matter who else you worshipped, but you had to worship the emperor, and you would take incense, and you would throw that incense in the fire, and you would say, Caesar is Lord, whenever you did that. And and, and bow in worship. Well, you obviously could imagine the difficulty that that would create for Christians. That's the reason for that specific terminology there. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is Lord, there is no other Lord, whether it's capital L or little l. Jesus is Lord. And when they declared that, what they were saying was, Caesar is not. And you can imagine, Caesar and Satan weren't too happy about that. That is going on in Smyrna. And not only that, in order to help enforce it, you, every April 15th, no, it wasn't April 15th, in order to enforce it, you would actually have to get a little piece of paper that said you did it. Authenticated and signed by the Roman government that said, yes, you offered the incense, and yes, you said that Caesar is Lord, and you would carry that around, and they would ask for it. It was like their little Caesar green card, if you will. It made it a requirement. And here, in the midst of this situation, this societal pressure, you find Christians. And Jesus writes to them, and He says to them, I know your works. And He says some other things. There are two encouragements that Jesus gives here to choose Christ over compromise. They're both found in verse 10. The first one is, don't compromise out of fear. 
Verse 10, if you'll see there, don't fear any of those things which are you are about to suffer. Don't compromise out of fear. And the second one is also found in the latter half of verse 10. Be faithful until death. Don't quit until the finish. That's Jesus' message to us and to Smyrna in the midst of that cultural situation. Don't compromise and don't quit. Don't compromise and don't quit. Don't compromise out of fear and don't quit until the finish. And I think that that is a powerful message for the temptations of our heart, even this morning. You know what the word Smyrna means? Well, it means bitter. The word means bitter. It also is, uh, is the same word for myrrh. It has to do with the myrrh or the resin, this, this gummy substance used as perfume. You know what else myrrh was used for? Embalming. So you have the word being very fitting for Christians. It was bitter to live in Smyrna as a Christian. And then myrrh was used for embalming. And Jesus says, be faithful until death. Well, let's look at this first encouragement to choose Christ over compromise. Don't compromise out of fear. Look at verse verse 9. He says, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, and I know the blasphemy. He lists three things here. He says, I know your works. I know how you're standing. I know what you're doing. I know you're being faithful in your duties as, as believers. I also know the pressure that you are under. He lists three things. Tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. Tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. Do you see that right there in the text? The word tribulation means pressure. It's trouble. It's the same word that's found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, where John says he is a fellow partaker in tribulation for Jesus because he's being exiled. It's trouble that comes to a believer because they are a believer. You understand the distinction? In this world, you will have trouble, whether you're a believer or not. I can remember witnessing to my dad, and I told him, Look, just because you come to Christ, just because you believe the gospel doesn't mean that all your troubles are going to go away. Isn't that the lie of the health-wealth movement, the prosperity gospel? Hey, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, Africans, and your pigs won't die, and your wives won't miscarry, and, and all of your crops will be perfect because Jesus will make it all better. Whenever you came to Jesus, did life get easier or harder? Well, in some ways it got easier because you know the Lord, but in a lot of ways it got harder because that's when the battle starts raging in your heart. You, before you just did wrong and now you know to do right. Just because you come to Jesus doesn't mean that you won't have pressure. This specific word for tribulation is pressure that comes because you are a Christian. Now, the troubles of the world will fall on believers and unbelievers. But there will be specific and unique pressure that you will face and that I will face that you've already faced because you are a follower of Christ. And Jesus says, I know that. This pressure that is, that is coming. And this will come. There will be pressure to conform. There will be pressure to go along. There will be pressure not to speak. Last Sunday I told you what has taken place in the last week and a half, will put the church in a position and every Christian in a position where you cannot hide about what your position is. Every single church. You will find out, we will find out in the days to come, very shortly, who believes the Bible and who does not believe the Bible. Right? I mean, that, that is the, that's the discussion that's going on in the culture and in the church. You will find out very quickly who will believe the Bible. Everybody says, right? I'm not picking on people, but Joel Osteen holds his Bible up every sermon. And he says, this is the Word of God, and then he puts it down and never speaks from it, usually from that point. Everybody says, you turn on TV and everybody says they preach the Bible. My message is coming from the Bible. You will find out very quickly who believes the Bible and who doesn't, based upon the circumstances that, that are before. There's going to be pressure that will come. Um, 
There's going to be social media pressure. We never took a final count, but there were thousands of emails. We still, uh, whenever we went through the TCS thing, we still find uh, uh, where you know Google or whoever will rank a school or something like that. We still find things out on the Internet where all of the basement trolls came and wrote bad reviews for TCS on things that we didn't even know existed. We still find that today, you know, a couple years after the fact. There will be pressure that will come. And everything in me wants to defend, everything in me wants to, wants to just go out on every single, every single one of those sites and go, you don't know the teachers at TCS, you don't know the students, all this is a lie, but I can't do that. I can't undo all that. There's pressure that comes. I can remember being a brand new believer speaking to one of my board members who was a, he professed to be a, um, to be a Catholic whenever he grew up and he wasn't practicing, he really didn't, I mean, but I can remember talking to him, witness, and then I mentioned something about, about creation. He's an internal medicine physician. Just me and him were sitting in the office, in his office and I mean, this seemed to be going really well. I mean, it looked like the doors were opening up where I could share the gospel with him. And I mentioned creation and how we have a sin nature from Adam, and, and it was just like, you know, the brakes came on the discussion. And he looked up. Adam? I mean, you don't believe in Adam like Adam and Eve, do you? And so here I am, a believer, a couple years, sitting with one of my board members for Anthem Blue Cross. And he presented it in a way like, really? I mean, you're not that stupid, are you? You don't really believe that stuff. And so here I'm tested. Praise the Lord, either out of youthful ignorance or the grace of God. I said, well, yeah, actually I do. I do believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I believe exactly what the Bible says. Don't you? And he said, well, no. I mean, we were taught in the Catholic Church that that was just kind of a story. You know, it was, at least in my Catholic Church, that was just kind of a story that was there, and it was more like a metaphor. So we ought to go back and read the Bible because Jesus believed in the literal Adam and Eve, and while we're at it, Jesus believed in the global flood, and he also believed in, uh, in Jonah and the great fish. He believed in all of those things. So you can't have one and, and not the other. You're going to be put in situations where they're going to look at you and say, you don't believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, do you? And those pressures are going to be there. It's probably going to be more on people 30 and down. I mean, we were talking about this uh, with the pastoral staff. Um, Ed and Gabe Boyce are probably not going to have as much interaction with LGBT people as, say, John Alley will at the middle school. Now, that's not because neither one of them want to engage or win people to the gospel. It's just their sphere. And students that are in college and that are in high school and people that work in different, different parts of life are going to have more interaction then maybe the rest of us. And pressure is going to come in different ways. And yet we're all called to do the same thing, not to compromise under the pressure. And if you don't get that kind of pressure, you need to pray for those who do so they won't capitulate under the pressure. He says tribulation. He also says poverty. I know the pressure. I know the poverty. But you are rich. He says it's not real poverty. Real riches is Christ. Now this word's interesting. Because there are two words in the Greek that mean poor. There's one that means poor, and then there's one that means dirt poor. You understand dirt poor, right? If you're from West Virginia, you understand dirt poor. The word means extreme poverty. This is the word for dirt poor. It means beggarly. It means that they didn't even have enough to eat. And it was specifically due to the city's love for emperor worship and Christians who would not worship. I called it a green card earlier. Don't take the illegal immigration thing with that. 
it was a green card in this sense. If you did not have that piece of paper where you said you worshipped the emperor, nobody would hire you. And so now here are Christians that they can't be hired or someone won't do business with you because you're a Christian, because you won't worship the same, the same gods. It's another pressure that you're going to face. You're going to be put in a situation where you're going to have to choose Christ over compromise and it may affect your livelihood. It may affect the job that you have. You can go out on the Internet and read the story that everybody's been bringing back to the, to the Christians' forefront this past week of the two cake bakers out in Montana that just got fined um, $167,000 or something like that. It's going to affect your livelihood. They're going to come after your pocketbook. Not only does he say poverty, but here's the last one. You're going to feel pressure from society, people that are around you, maybe even your, maybe even loved ones, maybe even family, maybe even co-workers, maybe even boss. You may be affected as they go after your pocketbook, but all of you will be affected by this last one. I know the blasphemy, in verse 9, of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of, of Satan. The word blasphemy has the idea of being slandered. Slandered. The Jews in Smyrna said false things about the Christians that were there. It's interesting that here are Jews that rejected the Messiah, that are declared by God, they're a tool of, of Satan. Now, I want you to notice two things. One, part of the pressure and persecution that the church was under was just general pressure. Part of it was their pocketbooks, and part of it was what people said about them. Now, here in America, we like to say, well, we're not persecuted. We're not persecuted because we are not going to be martyred for our faith. Nobody at this point is going to walk in here and try to you know, cut our heads off or, or anything else. But a persecution goes beyond just physical persecution. Here is blasphemy. Here is slander. And have you not read things where people present you as a believer in what you believe, and you go, well, that's not true at all? I don't feel that way. I'm not a bigot. I'm not a racist. I love people. I'd love to see every person, whether, you know, whatever their, their, uh, um, their stripe of fornication, come to Christ. <laughs> I mean, I don't have hatred in my heart toward individuals. The church is for sinners. I don't think I'm better than anybody else, but the church is for repentant sinners. And so as we talked last week, doesn't mean that you celebrate your sin as a Christian because Jesus died for it. You weep over it and you repent. And they will say all manner of evil about you, about your pastor, about your church. And you've been there before, but it's going to get increasingly difficult. This blasphemy of the Jews that they spoke about here was, they said Christians were cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. You know, they eat the, the body and the blood of Jesus. They said that they were immoral. Christians are immoral. They have these love feasts. And they greet each other with a holy kiss. They are homebreakers. <clears throat> because here would be a husband or a wife that would be married to an unbeliever and that they would come to Christ and then an unbeliever would go, I didn't buy into this. I didn't marry a Christian. I'm out of here. And they would keep their covenant to Christ rather than turn back to their pagan ways. All of those things were, were untrue. The society pushed a religion upon them. And our society has a religion, even though they want to say that they're secular. It's a religion, isn't it? It takes more faith to believe evolution than it does the Bible. There are people that are more committed to their religion of secularism than some Christians are to the Bible. I mean, watch them get angry whenever you begin to touch on their religious beliefs, those religious beliefs of self-worship. Society pushed a religion of tolerance. They didn't care if you worshipped Jesus. 
just as long as you worship the emperor also. And those who wouldn't worship the emperor or those who would only worship one God, those who would say that Jesus is the only way, were, were considered rebels and troublemakers and right-winged and closed-minded and intolerant and unproductive to the Smyrna society. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Pagan worship dominated social life. You had feasts and games and get-togethers and, and believers wouldn't participate in those things. So they were, they were viewed as antisocial and... Sheltered weirdos, not part of the mainstream. It's not a compliment for the unbelieving world to say that Christians are normal. You understand that? Don't wear that the world thinks that, that you guys get along as a good thing. It's a good thing whenever the world looks at you and says, there's something wrong with you. You're different. If they can't tell a distinction, there's an issue that's there. The Jews slandered. Now, the blasphemy that's there. He calls the Jews the synagogue of Satan. Drop down to verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, watch this, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, do the Jews have the ability to put anybody into prison? Who's putting them in prison? The Romans are. So you've got slander and blasphemy coming from the synagogue of Satan, the Jews, and you've got being locked up coming from the Roman society. Both Jew and Gentile are against the Christians in this society, and Jesus is attributing both of them to the wicked one. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And all of this around because they chose Christ and not just because they chose Christ, but because they wouldn't compromise. And Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Get angry. Lament. Have hope. But you're a Christian. Don't you dare fear what Satan or culture or anybody else can do to you? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You haven't lost your soul. Don't fear what man can do unto you. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Do you fear God? It's good. Fear Him. But don't fear, Jesus says, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Notice it's about to suffer. Not only were they going through tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy, but there's more suffering that's getting ready to come. That's in, in, the, in the future. And he even says that they're going to lock some of you up into prison and you're going to have tribulation. But it's going to be a short tribulation. It's going to be ten days, whether that's a literal ten days or whether it's a short period of time. Don't compromise under pressure. Pressure is going to come. And the second thing Jesus says is don't quit until the finish. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 10. Don't fear. And he says it in a positive way. Be faithful unto death. I did two negatives. Don't fear and be faithful. Don't fear, don't quit. Be faithful until death. Don't quit until the finish. He says these things are coming. They're going to arrest you. They're going to throw some of you in prison. That you may be tested. That you may be tried. And the church surely will be tested and tried. And you will find out who is the tares and who is the wheat. You'll find out who believes the Bible and who doesn't. And persecution is always good for our spiritual life. So what does that mean? I mean, you just sit back and do nothing? What's God going to do in this? What's God going to do? I have no idea. I'm going to work for revival and reformation. How about you? I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know whether He'll bring revival and reformation. I don't know whether it's, it's going to get worse. I know how it's going to end. I know it's going to ultimately get worse. But is that going to happen 10,000 years from now or 10 years from now? I don't know. You know the two things, while I don't know what God's going to do, revival, reformation, or it's going to get worse, you know the two things I do know? I know my duty, and I know my departure date. I know when I'm discharged. 
I know my duty, and my duty is to be a good citizen of earth and also to be a subject of heaven. I know my duty is to preach the gospel. I know my duty is to make the mind of God known to everyone who will hold still. That's my duty. And whatever God does, it doesn't matter what God does. What matters is my duty, and I will do my duty. And this has reinvigorated me to do my duty. The other second thing I know is I know my discharge date. And my discharge date for being a Christian is the same as yours. Your duty's the same, and your discharge date's the same. That's death. There's no 20-year retirement major in, in the Lord's Army, right? Your discharge date is death. It is. I know my duty, and I know my discharge date. And that's what Jesus says. Don't quit. If you're sitting here, and you're, you're, you're concerned, you sat through Roe v. Wade... And you said, oh, wow, you know, how horrible. Well, here we go again. It really wasn't that bad. Don't think that way. If you're sitting here going, man, everything's going to hell in a handbasket and I'm just not going to do anything. Don't think that way. Don't fear. And don't quit. Because your discharge date is death. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says these things are coming. The pressure is going to be there. The poverty may be there. A bad name may be there. Slanderers may be there. You may be even jailed. But don't quit. You know, Polycarp, 50 years after John's death, was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. You've heard about Polycarp in church history? Polycarp was burned alive at 86 for refusing to compromise and worship Caesar. 50 years after Jesus writes this letter, the pastor of this church is publicly murdered for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. He got the message. We assume the church got the message. Polycarp didn't fear. He said, 86 years I've served my Lord. They said, give you an opportunity to recant right now and you won't die. He said, 86 years I've served my Lord and He's never failed me. I'm not going to turn my back on Him now, says church history. He refused to compromise. He didn't fear. And He didn't quit until the finish. And the finish was death. And the Lord says, be faithful. Literally, keep proving yourselves faithful. You've proved yourselves faithful in the past. The church has proved itself faithful in the past. Timberlake has proved itself faithful in the past. Keep proving yourself faithful is what Jesus says. And keep proving yourself faithful until the day in which you stand before the Lord Himself and you give an account for your duty and whether you served until your departure date. Don't you quit on me. <laughs> don't you quit on the Lord. Don't fear. And don't quit. The Lord says keep proving yourself faithful. What He means is keep on being faithful. Don't break under the pressure. Don't compromise. Don't capitulate. Keep on doing it until death. Here's a probing question that you can't answer, even though I'm going to give it to you, but I want you to think about it. You cannot answer this question because you won't know until you really get there. Which is why the Lord allows you to be tested, which is what He says here, that you may be tested. And here's the question. You won't know the answer, but I want you to consider it. What's your price? What's your price of compromise? They say everybody's got a price. What's the level of cost to where it become, become so uncomfortable for you that you would allow some level of compromise? Again, you're not going to deny the Lord out and out. You're going to be a little compromised, and then a little compromised, and then a little more, and a little more. And the next thing you know, you're so far away from where you started, you can't see. What's your price? Is it your kids? Is it your pocketbook? Is it what people think about you? Can you not bear for someone to think ill of you? Spurgeon says, if you can't bear for someone to think ill of you or someone speaks ill of you, tell them that your moral portrait only needs a few blacker touches to be closer to the truth. What's your cost? 
Where will it hurt you? Where will you start feeling the pressure to, to compromise, to capitulate? Because wherever that is, Satan's goal is to tempt you to compromise in that area, and God's goal is to test you, to prove that you will be faithful. And that is the area that the enemy will come at. And that's also the area where Jesus gives you the message, do not fear and do not quit until the finish. The price, Jesus says, until death, what it should cost us is everything in this physical world, even life itself. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's a sad thought. But everybody's worried about getting written in the history books. Supreme Court Justice wants to make sure that he becomes the Supreme Court justice that's recorded in the history books, that he's the one that championed same-sex marriage. He's written on it three times. Now he's accomplished that, and he'll be written in the history books. Barack Obama is concerned about his legacy in the history books. Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, whoever else, legacy in the history books. Let me tell you something. Whenever you're on your deathbed, You're not going to be clinging to your bank statements. You're not going to be clinging to whatever seems most important to you in this life. You're going to be thinking about the one that you're going to be standing before in just a few moments. And whenever you stand before Him, you're not going to be worried about what men said about you in the history books. You're going to be worried about how you lined up with this book and what you did with Jesus Christ. Because that moment is what matters. That's why the Bible says, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Because life is but a vapor. It appears and vanishes away. Isabella turned three. It's in the last week or so. Three years old. We were just here, what, last Sunday? Praying about that pregnancy? We were just here the Sunday before that, standing in front of you with with Bailey, you know, being Jared's age, and Olivia and Nathan being younger, and Jared being his favorite name, Tank, right? Because he's small. You remember, life is quick. Eternity is long. The only thing that will matter is what you've done for Christ because that's all will last. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? Has He saved you? Have you believed His report? Have you believed in your heart that He was who He said He was? He died on the cross. He buried. He rose from the dead. Have you confessed Him as Lord? Have you said, You're God. I am not. I repent. Turn from my own way. I turn to You. I lay it all before You. I receive Your salvation. Whatever I have is nothing. I need what You have. Have you done that? That's what you have to do in order to stand that day pure and undefiled before Him because He can make you blameless whatever you've done, whatever you will do because we sing, right? There is power in the blood and Jesus saved.